Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. All right, let's pray again as we dive into the word. Father, this is your word. It is spiritually discerned. So we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to comprehend. You would help me to proclaim it with clarity and conviction. And you would help everyone else to receive it. And then for all of us to apply it. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So we've made our way to the end of the book or. To use the words of the book itself, we've made our way to the end of the matter. For 12 weeks, we have navigated uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, The preacher, the author here, has uh, made us look, made us stare at the vanity of this world. uh, The way in which the world can be confusing, it can be difficult, mysterious, frustrating, fleeting, downright harsh, cruel, unjust at times, or just simply an enigma, to use a word to sum it up. We've also been made to look at how, even amidst all of the vanity, there is joy that God has given gifts to enjoy. He's also given the ability to enjoy them. We've been made to stare at death, okay, to contemplate the certainty of it. We've, we've walked into the funeral home several times. We've visited the graveside. We've faced our mortality over and over and over again. Death has been one of the preacher's primary means to help us gain a right perspective on what it means to live in this vain world. Generally speaking, though it may not seem so on the surface, we've actually been exploring, and we've said this along the way, we've been exploring the path to the good life. Because Ecclesiastes has a name, it has a target, it has a strange way of shooting that target, but a target nonetheless. The book in many ways is an exhortation toward The good life to help you to know how to live it, what it is, a good life in a world in which we will all one day die, an exhortation toward the good life in a vain world, a life that is coming to an end. I imagine that for some of you, and I would even say myself in some ways, the book still is an enigma, Uh, but I hope at least for some of us that we've seen the beauty of the book and in some way been helped Uh, By it, maybe for some of us, this confusing, perplexing, often difficult life makes a little bit more sense and the joy that can be found in it feels a a little closer than it did before. If not, maybe the conclusion today uh, will aid in in getting you there in some regard, Um, as you've probably uh, picked up on, hopefully, because we've said it a few times. uh, We're doing two things in our gathering today. Okay, we're not just ending Ecclesiastes. We are beginning Advent something we celebrate on a yearly basis. And that word simply means coming. Okay, heard that mentioned earlier. It's a time, uh, four weeks before Christmas, where we take a moment to 
to look back as well as look forward. Uh, from where we are in history, we take a moment to, to look back on the first coming of Christ, okay, when he came the first time, as we anticipate when he's going to come again, we believe he's going to return. Uh, you could call Advent a time of preparation. Okay, We're a forgetful people. We're easily distracted. Christmas in particular can become about so much more than what it's actually about. Okay, We're easily distracted and drawn away. Advent helps to combat that. Advent sort of redirects the mind, captures the imagination, reorients the affections toward the reason for the season, as, as they say. Okay, Advent can help put the Christ back in uh, Christmas. And ending Ecclesiastes and beginning Advent may not seem to have any connection whatsoever. Uh, and I'll admit the majority of the sermon will be focused on ending Ecclesiastes, but it's where Ecclesiastes ends or how it ends that helps us to connect where Advent uh, begins. Hopefully we'll see that by the time we wrap up. Hopefully we'll see that, that in the end, Jesus is the key that unlocks the good life that Ecclesiastes has been exhorting us to. All right. So. Let's get to it. Two questions to conclude the journey today in this book using the language of the book. Question number one, what is the end of the matter? And then second, why is it the end of the matter? So what followed by a why? One point under the first question, four points under the second question. Okay, and everything should be on the screens as we go. So first question, what is the end of the matter? And this is not a sleight of hand trick question, not meant to lead you astray. Uh, so anyone want to guess uh, at what the answer is? What is the end of the matter? And it's an open book quiz. Any takers? Thank you from the back there. All right. I've reworded that just a bit and put the answer this way. Fear God and obey his word. Fear God and obey his uh, where it took me all week to come up with that point right there. Fear God and obey his word. So that's the end of the matter, according to the preacher. So he's put everything in life on a scale. And when it, it all comes down, it all boils down to this. Fear God, obey his word. I heard one pastor say it's like it's like he put everything in a pot, OK, in a pan and he put it on simmer. And everything else evaporated and was sucked into the fan, but the fear of God and the obedience of his word. Everything but the fear of God evaporated. Take note. He says the fear of God and the obedience and obedience to his word is the whole duty of man. You could translate that differently as the fear of God and the obedience of man is the wholeness of man. That's where wholeness is found. That's. This is what makes a person whole. And who doesn't want to be whole? Doesn't it sound better? When you say whole duty, we, we, we kind of get misled. But this is about wholeness, fulfillment. As one writer said, who wants to be broken, fragmented, easily upset, erratic, going off in all directions, unstable, uncontrolled, and in balance? Don't we all want wholeness? Well, herein lies the secret to wholeness in life. The key to living a life of joy a whole life in a fallen world, in this frustrating, broken world, is to fear God and to obey him. It's that simple, right? Now, this is not the first time that we're hearing about the fear of God in Ecclesiastes. It's been touched on before, but now he lands on it to make it kind of a, one of his main points or main themes, even if it hasn't appeared to be a main theme throughout the book. 
In fear, we've covered this. This is not a slavish fear. This is not a fear that cowers to God, okay? Fearing God means so much. It means that we know who God is. We know who we are in light of who God is. We know how we stand in relation to him. Basically, he's holy. He's other. He's set apart. We're not, okay? We're flawed. He's not. We're sinful. He's not. He's holy. We're not, okay? That sums up a lot of biblical truth. It means we take God seriously. It means we acknowledge him as as the highest good in everything. It means we we stop trying to be our own little gods. We stop trying to run and steer everything in our lives. Fear of God is a pregnant term. Keller gives a really good definition. The fear of God means an inner state, an inner condition of awe and amazement and wonder before the magnitude of the love and the power and the greatness of God. It, it literally is just sort of a stunnedness, if that's a word, before who God is and what God has done. Or to quote another author, the old belief centuries ago was that the sun revolved around the earth. As we know it, this belief was wrong. The earth revolves around the sun. Many of us have it wrong in our spiritual lives. God doesn't revolve around us. We revolve around him. We know that we fear God when we have made him the center or the centerpiece of our lives. Now, how does obeying his commandments or his word fit in here? Well, fearing God and obeying his commandments are really synonymous, okay? To fear God means to keep his commandments or better said, fearing God looks like obeying God. Those two things cannot be disconnected. Sort of the infallible test of whether or not you fear God is if you actually obey him. Do you follow him? Obeying God is not a separate thing from fearing him. It's what fear looks like in action. Okay, Obedience is fear in action. According to Charles Bridges, this is man's whole and happy business to fear God. The sum total of all that concerns him, all that God requires of him. So wholeness in life looks like fear and obedience, or you could say reverent submission, or you could say wonder, worshipful surrender, or you could say adoring conformity. How many other words you want to use there? So wholeness, you think about what we might say means wholeness, like what leads to wholeness in life? Well, it doesn't look like leaving a lasting marker legacy. It doesn't look like maximizing pleasure. It doesn't look like maximizing wealth. It doesn't finally look like being right or proving everybody else wrong. It doesn't look like being in power. It doesn't look like the perfect life with a happy wife or the happy spouse or the happy kids and on and on and on. Wholeness, according to God's word, looks like being people who are in awe of God and who follow God. That's wholeness. I think a lot of those other things might flow from that. Just not wholeness. That's the end of the matter. Fear God and obey his word. That probably not what we would fill in the blank with if we're honest. When we if we were asked the question, what is the end of the matter? We probably wouldn't say fear God and obey his commandments. We might intellectually if we know the Bible well. But it just doesn't seem intuitive to us. But it is so according to Ecclesiastes. That's where the preacher lands the plane. Fear and obedience. That's the what. Now the why. Okay. Now the why. And the second question is 
The answer to the second question is much longer than the answer to the first one. So second question before us today, why is it the end of the matter? What does the preacher give us by way of explanation or reason concerning why he lands on fear and obedience as being the end? Because he doesn't just say that's that you need to accept it. He gives justification for his conclusion, sort of some of the justification comes before this text while some of the justification comes in the text that we're looking at today. Okay, so some of it has already come in what we looked at in the book while the other part of it is here right in the text. So our why question here is partially answered by the text and fully answered by the book. Remember, every text rests in a context. So this text is in the book as a whole. So how do we address the why? I'm going to propose four reasons why the end of the matter is fear and obedience. Two are immediately in front of us. The other two are in the rest of the book. We'll start with the two that come from the book as a whole. Uh, First reason why fearing God and obeying God is the end of the matter and where wholeness lies. Or just to put the question this way, why does the good life rest in fear and obedience? So let's frame the question that way. Why does the good life rest okay, in fear and obedience? Number one, reason number one, the vainness of this world. The vainness of this world. So the refrain that all is vanity is woven throughout Ecclesiastes. It's the one thing, if you've ever looked at Ecclesiastes, that you remember. Okay, It's one of the primary themes of the book. You have the opening statement in chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is Vanity. And then you have this inclusio at the end of the book. So chapter eight, you kind of have a, a change in how the, the person is speaking here. But at chapter 12, verse eight here, just before our text, he says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Basically, the very same thing he said in chapter one, verse two. So it's kind of bookends the majority of the book. According to the preacher, there is no lasting thing under the sun. Remember, he talks about life on earth as being under the sun. Nothing that you can ultimately set aside for yourself. It's all fleeting. It's a breath. It's vapor. Wisdom, work, pleasure, life itself. He tackles everything and he says it's vain. It's vanity. In the end, you die. None of it goes with you. In the end, you die. You take nothing. You can't derive ultimate meaning, ultimate satisfaction, ultimate purpose out of the things of this world. Because one day you will die and you will no longer have any of those things. Not to mention any of those things can be gone in an instant in this life. Okay, Remember, we don't have ultimate control. Anybody in here that actually thinks they have ultimate control of their lives is delusional. Remember, I think it was... Last week, we, we can reduce risk, but we can't eliminate risk. We do everything in life we can to reduce risk. It's called insurance, right? Investments, insurance, all of the, There's so much we do to redu- reduce risk. Seat belts, but we cannot eliminate risk. We have no idea what health diagnosis, natural disaster, or evil dictator resides around the next corner. And we have no idea how that will affect our lives. Food is good, money is not evil, pleasure is good, hard work is good, wisdom is good, but every bit of it is limited. It can't ultimately deliver, it can't ultimately satisfy. It's all vain, futile, and fleeting because none of it lasts, even as good as it may be. 
So what does ultimately last? What does ultimately deliver? Or better said, who lasts and who can deliver? Sunday school answer is Jesus, right? It's God. God is the constant amidst all the inconstant. God is the only certain amidst all the uncertain in life. That being the case, then be in awe of him. Obey him. Follow him. Trust him. That's what the author's saying. Obey him. Trust him. Follow him. Not the million other things that will not last, that are uncertain. So why is fearing and obeying God the end of the matter? Because all other matters end. Fear and obey because all is vanity. Fear and obey the one thing or the one person that's not vain. That's the case the preacher has been building since chapter 1. That's where he's been leading us. Through the lens of death as well as disaster, through the lens of our, our own demise and our own ignorance, he's led us to the point where there's only one thing left that's constant, where there's only one person left that's constant, and that's God. Therefore, be in awe, respect, reverence, worship, obedience, submission, following Him. It all goes to Him. Now, it's easy to get somewhat sidetracked if you just take those two points. Vanity on one side, Fear and obedience on the other. Okay, you can focus on those and miss the the balancing point of the book, as I'll call it. Okay, there are actually three themes in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, fear, and anybody want to take a guess at the third one that we've hit on a number of times? You want to say it in the back. You were good earlier. Joy. Let's just give it to you. Joy. You're all looking at me awkwardly. Okay. Enjoyment. Vanity, fear, and joy, or an enjoyment. So, vanity is a thread that's been woven throughout. Fear, not woven quite as tightly, but then landed on at the end. And then enjoyment, another really evident thread that the author's been weaving throughout. Okay? This leads to our next point. Next reason why the good life rests in fear and obedience. Reason number one, the vainness of the world. Reason number two, the enjoyment of his gifts. The enjoyment of his gifts. Okay? We have these recurring, we've called them carpe diem, seize the day type texts throughout Ecclesiastes. It's this odd dynamic of being told on one side, everything is vanity, and then immediately after, enjoy. Okay, Enjoy the seemingly vain life that is found wanting. Okay, Everything is vain, and then you get something like this, chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. And then you get vanity again, vanity, it's all vanity. And then chapter 5, verse 18, after hearing about the vanity of wealth and honor in particular, he says, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil at which one toils under the sun in the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. And then again, chapter 9, verse 7, after hearing again that death awaits us and everything is vain, go. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has approved of what you do. Life is vain, now enjoyment. It's a strange message. Doesn't immediately land on us. You're going to die, therefore enjoy the time you have. It seems unnatural in certain ways. 
And to be clear, it is in certain ways unnatural. There is a supernatural aspect to it. To this enjoyment amidst vanity, you have to read the entirety of the Carpe Diem style text. So you go back to that one in chapter two and here's how he proceeds. This also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from him who can eat and who can find enjoyment or the one in chapter five, which makes the same point. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. So not only are the gifts from God, the enjoyment of the gifts also come from God. God supplies the gifts and the ability. He supplies the gift and the batteries that make it light up. With God, enjoyment is included. So make the connection here. The good things in this life, those things that can be enjoyed, those things come from God. What else comes from God? The ability to enjoy those things. So where do you Want to be to maximize that reality close to God, walking with God, following God in relationship to God. You want to be found fearing and obeying God. You want to be in reverent submission to him. The good life looks like enjoying his gifts in relationship with him, which looks like fear and obedience as the Bible defines it. You see how this works? Everything is vain. God is not. So get with him and stick with him. God is good, gives good gifts to his children, gives the ability to enjoy those gifts. So get with God and stick with him. Now, there's a key word. I've I've said it a couple times or key qualifier. Rightly enjoying his gifts. God gives the ability to rightly enjoy his gifts. Our problem is. Is that we don't rightly enjoy the gifts. We wrongly use them. Try to get too much out of them. Or in short we abuse the gifts. It's only through right relationship with God. That we discover right enjoyment of the gifts. God has put guardrails around these gifts. He's told us there are limitations. He's told us how they are designed. And how they are supposed to work. You might sum up the qualification this way, which leads to our next point. Right use of God's gifts takes wisdom. And where do we get wisdom? From God, more specifically from God's word, which leads to the next point or next reason. This point is both the next reason why the good life rests in fear and obedience. And it's the source of the wisdom we need to rightly enjoy the gifts that God has given us. Reason number three, the character of his word. The character of his word. This is where we finally get to the text where he gives us specific reason in the text before us. And honestly, there's an entire sermon on this. So this encompasses verses nine through twelve. Okay, a lot of meat on this truth. Enough for a standalone sermon. But I said we're going to finish Ecclesiastes in 12 weeks. It is week 12. And Lord willing, in a few moments, we're going to accomplish that task. And even if you don't congratulate me, I will. So I think it may be the first time ever. It's going to come to fruition, Lord willing. So for now, verses 9 through 12 get one point in the sermon. So let me read these, te- these uh, verses again, just because it's been a minute. Uh, verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. 
The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. All right. A lot there, but take notice, first of all, that he says all of the collected sayings here. So all of the preacher taught and weighed and studied and arranged these words that are delightful and truthful. All of this comes from where? One shepherd. If you're using an ESV, then you see that shepherd is capitalized. That's because the translators see this as a clear reference to God. So this means that the musings of Ecclesiastes are not from some skeptical philosopher. Ecclesiastes is part of the of God's revelation to us, written by the preacher, but inspired by God. So in the words of Second Timothy three sixteen, it is God breathed or in Second Peter one twelve, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is inspired. So we have. Ecclesiastes here and the Bible as a whole as a word from God, from the one shepherd. And what we have here in this text are a lot of characteristics, as I would call it, of God's word. And these characteristics serve as a justification or a collective reason behind why we should fear and why we should obey God, why we should obey his commandments. In short, we fear and obey because of his word, because of the character of it, because of how good it is. Now, there are a lot of different points here, but I'm just going to try to hit on as much as I can at somewhat high level. So take note first, though, this is a bit of a side note. Take note of the process or the journey that the preacher takes as he puts together the book of Ecclesiastes. And I would say his journey is an example for all of us, particularly those that teach and preach the word in in any way. So according to verse nine, he weighed and studied and arranged many proverbs with great care. Now, if you're thinking that Solomon wrote this, your mind goes to, okay, yeah, he kind of put together the book of Proverbs. He wrote most of that. But this appears to be mostly a reference to the book of Ecclesiastes. So remember, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs are both wisdom literature. They fall in the same genre. Okay? And Ecclesiastes contains a lot of proverbial wisdom throughout. So he's talking about how he put this book together. So the preacher went through a process of rigorous study to put all of this together. And why? Not just to write it down, but it says to teach. It says besides being wise, he also taught the people knowledge. So his study was not simply selfish. It wasn't just for him. It was for others. He is presenting an example of what you might call painful in a good way, painful private Study for the sake of public teaching. I heard one pastor pose this question. He said, what do you, it's really a riddle. What do you not have less of the more you share it? What do you not have less of the more you share it? Knowledge. Knowledge. It's like a candle, you know, it's not diminished just because you light another candle with it. Look at the words of the preacher and therefore how the word of God is described. Verse 10. So they are called words of delight as well as words of truth, words of delight and truth. And there's there's a bit of a 
sad irony in this because a lot of people find Ecclesiastes to be woeful, somewhat pessimistic, or they're simply left confused by it, when in actuality it is a delightful book, meant to bring pleasure. Okay, That word delight there could be translated as pleasure. David Gibson, who we've quoted often, says, God is not a killjoy in the way he made the world, nor is he a grumpy old man who wants us to live in a certain way in his world. We often think about God's word in reference to that that second part of verse 10 about it being true. And that's that's true. Okay, God's word is true. It's extremely important. If God's word is not true, it's pointless. Everything we're doing today is is vain and, and pointless. We shouldn't be doing it. So truth stands at the heart of who God is and what God has says. But it seems that we don't often miss that in the church. We miss the fact that his word is delightful or pleasurable or enjoyable. There's even a point to be made here about the artistry of the word literary artistry. Many have said, even if you disagree with the preacher or the author's point, you have to appreciate his writing style. There's an artistry in it. Okay, You can take pleasure in the way that he writes. Philip Ryken said, it's designed to please the ear, inspire the imagination, fascinate the mind, delight the soul. So think about this. The Bible doesn't just give true statements. It gives things like poetry to emphasize those true statements. Think about it like this. The, 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 the Bible makes true statements about marriage and about intimacy, right? Just true statements. But then the Bible gives the Song of Solomon, okay, that just adds some pop to the truth that he says over here. And you, you can do that throughout the Bible, whether it's through illustrations. Just think about Jesus and the way he taught. You had true statement and you had all of these parables that just brought it to life for the people. It's both beautiful and true. The truth of God's word is intimately connected to the beauty of God's word. Preacher keeps going. He adds that the word is like a goad. It's like nails firmly fixed. So probably not many of us have goads, um, but goads are like old school shock collars. But you didn't have electricity or batteries. So gold goads are one of the tools that shepherds. Used, right? still used in some parts of the world, to drive oxen down a road. Okay, It was a, a stick with a point on the end of it, inflict a certain amount of pain on an animal to get it to go in, a, in the right direction. Okay, A right amount of pain for a good purpose. Okay? Think about it. That, that's how God's word works at times. It causes us pain and pushes us in the right direction or redirects us. So God's word hurts with a purpose. It'll prod us at times out of complacency. So you've got to take note of that when it feels like you've been wounded by Scripture. It has gone against your autonomy, said something you don't like, that you feel the weight of it come upon you. That's for a reason, a good reason. If the Bible never hurts you, then let me be really clear. You should probably worry. If this word never rubs you in the wrong way, then be concerned. Be concerned. It's sort of like working out. If there's never any pain, if you are never sore, you are not doing something right. Okay? You're really not. You're not doing quite enough if there's not a good level of pain, if there's not a little soreness in the days that follow. 
As one pastor said, he said, through his word, God is acting like a physical therapist for your soul. He only inflicts pain in order to heal. Not sure about you, I've become way too familiar with the physical therapist, thanks to some early back issues in my life. And I can tell you, if you've not been to a physical therapist, they inflict a certain level of pain. But when you get to the end of the process, you realize how good that pain truly was. And that pain actually, over time, causes you to be freer than you've ever been physically. It it causes you to be able to do things you could not do prior to going into that physical therapy. In many ways, therapy is freeing. This is one of the ways God works through his word. You might say God inflicts a little pain now to save us from a lot of pain later. It also says his word is is like fixed nails. So several things this could mean. Fixed nails, you can hang something on a fixed nail. A fixed nail holds something firmly together. So you nail something together. God's word is like this. You can hang something on it. Okay, it can hold the weight in difficult times. It can support that weight. It holds your life together. This could also be a reference to how God's word sticks in your mind. So the way that is worded, it sticks in your mind so that you stick to God's ways. Be one way to think about it. So his word, you, you start to summarize this. His word is beautiful or delightful. It's true. It provides direction in life. It hurts for our good. It provides something firm to hang our lives on. It sticks in our minds. It directs us. Just a sampling. I mean, there's so much depth in what is being said there. It's just a sampling about God's word. And then he takes to help help us to understand it better. He gives us a contrast to God's word or a warning. So verse 12, it's, it's, it's a contrast or a warning to kind of highlight how good God's word is. Verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Okay. What is these? That's the collected sayings or generally it's God's word. So you could say, beware of anything beyond the collected sayings or God's word of many books, of making many books. There is no end and much study is weariness of the flesh. So how many readers do we have in here? By show of hands, how many readers we got? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven. There's a bunch. Okay. We'll just call it the majority, okay? Uh, Even if you love to read and you read a lot, you can still affirm this statement. Of making many books, there is no end. Every time you turn around, there's another book. I want to read that book. I want to read that book. I want to read that book. Somebody's making a suggestion. Something pops up in your feed. Whoever's doing the marketing and the algorithms out there, they just got you you pinpointed. So um, I did a little research. And, And by the way, if you're a student, you can affirm or ever been a student, you can remember back that there is weariness in much study. So a lot of you are getting close to the holidays and, and, and this, this fall semester is coming to an end. You say, yes, there, there's some weariness in much uh, study. But I did a little research, just a little, so don't, don't hold me to this. But I found that there is somewhere, and I don't know how you could hold anybody to this, that there's somewhere between half a million and a million books published annually. You think we could get a little more precise on that? But then the research I found says that if you add in self-published books, you could get up to four million books published on a yearly basis of making much books. There truly is no end. And it is weary to try to keep up with all of them. And according to the culture around us, you have to. You have to be an expert on everything. If you're not, then 
you'll just get run over and you're, you're dumb and ignorant and all of that. So you just, it's just weirdness. But, okay, the preacher's point is not, hey, we produce too many books. I think that would be a side note. Maybe we're producing too many books. But in context, his point is beware of thinking that you truly need anything outside of or beyond the word of God. To get more precise, okay, he's not saying don't read, okay, and he's not saying don't read a lot, but he is saying do not think that God's word is insufficient and therefore to be truly wise and to live the good life that you have to have something else, okay, to get precise. Don't think that God's word is in any way insufficient to be wise and to live the good life. He is saying that scripture is sufficient and scripture is primary. He's not tearing down study because he would say all wisdom is his. Okay, but it has to be filtered through his word. So scripture is sufficient and primary. The point is that the Bible should be primary, supreme, constantly consulted, the constantly consulted authority and guide to the good life that God lays out. You want the good life that's contained here. It may be expounded upon, applied in a certain way through the many books that are made, but it comes through here. So that's directly the point I think he's making. Indirectly, I think he would also make the point, beware of all that other stuff, of being addicted to it, of too many books, of thinking the endless pursuit of that. What about beware of being addicted to social media and being ignorant of scripture? Beware Beware of being addicted to your news feed and unfamiliar with scripture. Don't know the ins and outs of every political issue on the planet, but have no clue what the biblical storyline is. Beware of treating the news or social media like an IV feed while the Bible just sits and collects dust. I think indirectly he would be saying that the good life resides here it's it's going to come through here. It's not going to come directly through anywhere else. OK, those things can support as much as they agree. But this is the source. This is the source. So why does the good life rest in fear and obedience? Because God's word is delightful and true. It directs your life, hurts you when you need need it to hurt you, provides something firm and memorable to hang on. In short, the good life rests in fear and obedience because of the character, the goodness, the truthfulness, the beauty of God's word. One more reason. So just to recap, why does the good life rest in fear and obedience? Because of the vanity of the world or the vainness of the world, the enjoyment of his gifts, the character of his word. And lastly, because of the surety of his judgment, the surety of his judgment. So uh, the last verse of the text drives home part of the last point. So the last verse is sharp enough to hurt, but hopefully for our good. Verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Hear that again. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Not the first time judgments come up in the book, but it's a little more blunt in this final verse. 
Why fear God? Why obey God? Because judgment is coming. It is certain. We, we've heard it before. It, it's, I, th- I think it's the particulars of this verse that, that rattle us a bit more than the other mentions of judgment. So God will bring every deed into judgment. Every secret thing, whether good or evil. Put that a different way. God will hold you accountable. God will hold me accountable for everything I've ever done or will do. There is no such thing as a so-called secret sin. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight. 1 Corinthians 4.5, the Lord will bring, this is the New Testament version of what is being said here, the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Trying to keep a sin secret is like trying to hide an elephant in your closet. It is it's, it's practically, technically impossible. It's an ultimately futile effort. David Gibson, again, says Ecclesiastes says that a day is coming when some people will discover that they are not ready for the most important event in the world. Their life has been one long exercise in avoiding reality and ignoring what is coming toward them, death and judgment. The words of the preacher are meant to be like the hand on the shoulder that rudely shakes us from our slumber, bringing us down to earth with a bump. Clear message of Ecclesiastes and of the rest of the Bible. Every one of us is going to die and be judged. Every single one of us. Death and judgment. There's nothing that we've ever done or will do that will be hidden on that day. So the question becomes, it has to be, the question has to be, are you ready? Are you ready for that day? Are you looking forward to that day? Don't get too excited about it. But are you looking forward to that day? Are you dreading that day? Are you ignoring that day? Are you somewhere in between or a mix of those? If you want to be prepared for that day, then then Advent really is the answer. Jesus is really the answer, but we're, we're connecting this to Advent. So you, you heard that the, the first theme. So we cover Advent thematically. We go through these different themes to help us to. Look back on the first coming of Christ. The first theme is repentance. You think about the words of joy to the world. Okay, one lyric in joy to the world, that line that goes, let every heart prepare him room. Preparing room involves repentance. It's clearing out of some stuff. One of the very first messages that we have recorded of Jesus was this. These are the words of Jesus. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the gospel. Jesus right there is helping us to get ready for verse 14 of Ecclesiastes. When he says the kingdom of God is at hand, in part he's saying judgment that Ecclesiastes is talking about. That judgment is imminent, meaning it's near, it's coming. It could happen at any moment. And Jesus is saying be prepared. How? By repenting and believing in the gospel. What does that entail? Repent and believe. Okay? It's best, best thought about as a turning. Okay? It's a turning from something and a trusting in something else. It's a turning from whatever it is that on that day you think this is going to get me through that. Whatever I think is on the other side, whatever it may be, I think this is going to take care of it. Could be works. That's, that's what a lot of us 
think, okay, I've got enough good works, just been a good person, that's going to get me through, it's letting go of that. It's pushing that away and turn around and saying, Jesus is it. The one and only answer. The only one that will get me there. The only one that gets me through verse 14 of Ecclesiastes. Turning away, letting go, turning to. The summation of the gospel here, the summation of the gospel is, is, is Jesus. It's the good news about the birth that we're going to celebrate. The life, okay, the perfection of his life. Okay, his death, the sacrificial nature of his death and in his resurrection from the dead in our place. All of that happened in our place. Okay, he was born, he lived, he died, he rose as a substitute in our place. He did all of that for us. So we get credit for the life and the death and we are raised with him. Advent is a reminder in part that judgment is imminent But salvation is available, and that salvation is only and finally through Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, the baby in the manger, the one that may already be all over your houses, is the answer to verse 14. Are you ready? Are you prepared? If you don't know... Jesus, if you're not ready, not prepared, then verse 14 is something to be dreaded. It is something to be feared in the worst way. However, if you know Jesus, this is not a thing to be feared in the worst way. It's a thing to be respected, revered, honored in a certain way. It it, it will help guide our life and correct us in a lot of ways, but we don't cower In fear at verse 14 for the believer, the day of judgment is when the pains of this vain world give way to the glory of the new one to come. So we look forward to that in a lot of ways. It's also a day of reward. So take note. Verse 14 says that every secret thing will be brought to light, whether good or evil. Every one of us will have to give an account for everything that we've done. Every one of us. So take a thought experiment with me. Do I have time for this? Yeah, i got a few minutes. So thought experiment with me. Real quick, first memory in life. So go back to childhood. Do not think about this week or the last few years. Go back to childhood. First memory that comes to mind. Real quick. You're not telling anybody. You can tell them later if you want to. First memory. All right. First sin. First time you disobeyed your parents or... Hit a sibling or whatever. Can you think about what it is? You got it in your mind? Lied to your parents, disobeyed them, talked back to them, told them no. Hit your brother, sister. Okay. Think about the first good thing you did, the first time you obeyed your parents. Very first one. Took the trash out, said yes, ma'am. Honored, respected them, I don't know. Did something selfless to your sibling. Very first one. There's going to come a day when you're going to stand before the God who created you and you're going to walk that exercise from day one to the day of death and you're going to recount every single one of them. Every single thing you've ever done in your life, both good and evil, will be laid bare. 
It'll be on the projector screen behind you. For those in Christ, the evil is covered by Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hear that. Let that resonate. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All those sins covered in Christ, but also our good deeds commended by God. Every one of those things commended by God. Every time you obeyed, every time you were faithful, commended by God. Zach Eswin says, wrote a good book on Ecclesiastes, he says, secret evils are exposed, but so are secret goods. Noble moments and people rescued by grace, but long overlooked and disregarded and are hidden no more. God's judgment, the preacher implies, not only condemns, it also finally vindicates all those things you've done that nobody's ever noticed. God knows every single one of them. Life of Paul in so many ways is is an example uh, to us. It's clear from the life of Paul that final judgment for the believer was both a motivation for holy living and a motivation for divine commendation. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, So whether you, we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You see there in Paul how the surety of God's judgment led Paul to fear, but in a healthy way. It led him to obey, not out of dread, but for the purpose of pleasing, he says. He knew judgment was coming, that it would all be laid bare. But his aim was to please, not to be alarmed. Paul was not alarmed by the coming judgment. Who saw it clearer than him? He wrote about it, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Judgment is coming. I'm going to be laid bare. I want to please the Lord. I'm not alarmed by that day. It's interesting that some people walk away from Ecclesiastes thinking nothing matters. It's all vanity. It's all meaningless, which is that's why that's a bad interpretation of that word meaninglessness. This last verse flips that on its head. Riken again put it well, the final message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters, but that every single thing matters. So why does the good life rest in the fear of God and obedience to God? Because God and his word is the only are the only things that will last because his gifts are maximized in his presence because his word is beautiful. It is true. It is a stable God for life and because his judgment is sure. That's why the good life rests in the fear of God. And the obedience of God's work. I know he says that's the end of the matter, but it doesn't feel like it, does it? A lot more could be said here, but um, I'll end this way. I'll end with a quote because one of the other elders pointed out at some point we've used too many quotes in this series. So why not end with a quote? Okay, one more from Zach Eswine. I think it puts a bow on all this. He says, as we look out at the wants the pastures, the past, the deadness of soul, the valley of death's shadow and the presence of enemies. Basically, if we look out at life under the sun and all that entails, that's what he's saying there. If we look out at life under the sun and all that it entails, we engage these realities under the sun by contemplating God as our shepherd, the one shepherd. 
This shepherd is the Lord. He is the want provider. He is the rest giver, the pasture and path leader, the soul restorer. He is the valley walker, the with me overcomer, the comforter, the table preparer, the head anointer, the cup filler, the goodness and mercy sender, the house dweller and the forever all of the days of my life secure. In short, this vain, enigmatic, confusing, downright difficult life under the sun, this life that confuses, that confounds, is to be lived in fear and obedience to the one shepherd. Why? Because it's where the good life is found. It's the only place the good life is found in awe and in reverence and in obedience to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you for a word that goads us. For nails firmly fixed, for delightful words, for true words that direct our lives, that give us perspective, that help us to see life in light of death, not in a way that is downcast or that dreads. But we look at death and our life is informed and redirected, that we see that we find enjoyment in the good gifts that you have given us. God, clarify in our minds the truth of this book that we have been saturated in for weeks now. We pray that it would be used in the days, weeks, years ahead to make much of you through how we live. We pray this in Jesus' name.